This is The Guardian. Today, does Keir Starmer look like a prime minister in waiting? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In the middle of an unseasonably warm and bright Tuesday... Crowds were swelling outside the conference centre in Liverpool. Here, the Labour Party was hosting what it hoped would be its last conference before a general election. And in the minutes before Keir Starmer would deliver his speech, there was a sunny sense of optimism among the party faithful. A crackle of anticipation in the air. What does Keir Starmer mean to you? Well, I think he's he's the right man for the job. He's very... He's pragmatic, which is what we need, and we need somebody like him who's steady. Pragmatic. Steady. But this was Keir Starmer's chance to dazzle, to convince the British public that he really is the man to lead the country. I'm expecting a speech that will open doors for the community. I don't think there's going to be anything disappointing in Keir's speech at all. I believe that it will definitely be a winning speech for us. For those who are here, there seems to be a real momentum behind Starmer and a sense that he's a man who looks and sounds like he's on his way to Downing Street. Confident. Transformative. Statesmanlike. You know, for the very first time, I think there's going to be hope in, in, in England for our young people, for our teachers, our nurses, our police. You know, and, and, and that is really what I'm hoping from from well, Keir. I'm inspired by you. I found that inspiring. <laughs> from The Guardian, I'm Nasheen Iqbal. Today in Focus, what is Keir Starmer's plan to rebuild Britain? Stacey, you're The Guardian's political correspondent and we've heard from you over two episodes the lessons that Keir Starmer could learn from Labour's 97 win and how important Tony Blair's conference speech at Blackpool was in 1996. It was his last before becoming Prime Minister. So we've just heard Starmer's speech and we are in the busy conference centre in Liverpool with delegates coming and going. Kieran, can you tell me how much was riding on Starmer's speech? Well, in a lot of ways, Keir Starmer went into this conference in a similar position to that which Blair found himself in in 1996. Labour riding high in the polls. Starmer's not polling quite as well as Blair was at that time, but he certainly looks at the moment set for power. However, just as Blair had to do in 1996, Starmer had one important job at this conference, and that was to reassure people who were nervous about a Labour government that it was going to be no threat to them. 1996, as we heard in the two-part documentary, was all about 
reassurance, reassurance, reassurance for Labour. And that has been the mantra at this conference as well. Everything's been very tightly managed. And I think most of all, Starmer wanted to present a managerial reassuring face to Britain to make sure that there was no reason not to vote for him. Kieran, the speech began in a slightly bizarre fashion. You could call it a glittering start, not the one that Starmer was hoping for when he had to tackle a protester who'd gotten onto the stage. True democracy is citizen-led. Politics needs an update. How did he deal with that? Well, it was such a perfect way in many ways for Keir Starmer to start that uh, somebody next to me joked that he thought the whole thing was a setup. The protester came on right at the beginning, threw glitter all over Starmer, shouted completely incoherently towards the microphone. Nobody could tell what the message he was trying to sell was. We are in crisis! We are in crisis! Our whole future is in jeopardy! Starmer then takes his jacket off, appears in his shirt sleeves, and he says... Protest or power, that's why we changed our party conference. That's why we changed our party. They just encapsulated everything for Starmer. It was, in many ways, the absolute ideal note for the Labour leaders to start on. Well, Kieran, it also feels like conference has been somewhat overshadowed by events in the Middle East. And the issue of Israel and Palestine is one that has often been difficult for Labour in the past. How has it affected the mood of this week here in Liverpool? And how did Keir Starmer deal with it in his speech? Well, in many ways, while most of the world has been focused on what's going on in Gaza, Labour conference has just been getting on as normal. In fact, events there have impacted on this conference in much less of a way than they might have done if Jeremy Corbyn was still the Labour leader. And I think that the extreme nature of the attack from Hamas meant in a certain way that Labour was on surer footing than it might otherwise have been. This united almost everybody in the Labour Party, and there was very little dissent. Now, Starmer did dwell on it. But this action by Hamas does nothing for Palestinians, and Israel must always have the right to defend her people. That got the largest standing ovation of any part of the speech that far on. And... That was a real moment, I think, to show you just how much things have changed from three or four years ago. And of course, it wasn't the only standing ovation he got. Can you tell us what the big theme of the speech was? What was the argument that was holding it all together? A lot of the theme of this speech was a direct pitch to Tory voters. Uh, He talked about new house building, about building new towns. Where there's good land for affordable homes, we'll get shovels in the ground, cranes in the sky and build the next generation of Labour new towns. About reforming the NHS. More operations, more appointments, more diagnostic tests. About making Britain's tax regime more competitive, being more pro-business, having a vision of science and innovation for the future. These are the kind of things you can imagine Rishi Sunak saying as well. And it's very clear, Keir Starmer thinks, there are a lot of disillusioned Tory voters out there to be won over. One Labour official told me that the two speeches, the first one by Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor, and the one by Keir Starmer, were two parts of a whole. Rachel Reeves' speech was very much about how things have gone wrong in the last 13 years. Because the questions people should ask themselves ahead of the next election are simple. Do you and your family feel better off than you did 13 years ago? So that's step number one. Step number two was Starmer's speech, which was 
and this is how we can improve things. What is broken can be repaired. What is ruined can be rebuilt. Wounds do heal. And I think he had to sell some of that optimism because Labour has spent a long time in a pessimistic place talking about how bad things are in the country. He needed to be able to sell a story of all right, well, what would a future under Labour look like? Now, he didn't really have much policy. There was nothing in this speech that was very new. But he did at least manage to string a coherent story about a Labour-governed Britain. And I think that's what he wanted to do. Kieran, you said it was relatively policy-light, but there were some ambitious plans announced. Can you tell me more about those? There is serious policy there, and we should actually reflect that. One of the most interesting parts of his speech, I thought, was to do with the Green Agenda. So when Rishi Sunak says, row back on our climate mission, I say, speed ahead. Speed ahead with investment. And at the heart of that is this £28 billion Green Prosperity Fund, a big chunk of which is going to go to this new... Great British Energy Company that he talked about today and will be based in Scotland. A new energy company that will harness clean British power for good British jobs. A company that will be publicly owned conference and we will be based in Scotland. There were other interesting things. I think that Labour's plans to reform the planning system are much bigger and broader than a lot of people realise. So where Starmer said, well, we don't want to rip up the green belt. No, but they do want to make some fairly big changes to the planning system so that they can start getting houses built again. We used to call it the dream of home ownership, didn't we? We used to say it glibly on stages like this. That was a major theme in the speech. They've got this target of 300,000 new homes a year. The current government has found that very, very difficult to hit. And to do that, you need to be willing to do things like much broader compulsory purchase order powers for local authorities. You need to be able to put local authorities together so that they can have more purchasing power as a whole. You need to give them the power to build on the green belt if they want to. All of these are things that Labour is talking about. There are other things as well, like equipping people with skills for the future, AI, how technology will play a role in public service delivery. But there was nothing there, I think, that we didn't know that Keir Starmer was going to say in advance. Last week, Rishi Sunak had nothing really to say about the cost of living. And arguably, being in the room, I feel that was the most moving part of Starmer's speech. How exactly did he address that and what did he say? One job that Keir Starmer had to do was to sell a vision of himself personally which is something I think he's not that good at. He doesn't like personality politics. He doesn't really like talking about himself. But he does have a couple of set phrases. He talks about his pebble-semi quite a lot. He talks about his sister, who is a care worker. I think during his conference speech, he was able to just expand on that a little bit and explain why he really feels it when people can't get ahead. One thing I would say, though, is he often talks about we, on the one hand, and then the working people on the other hand, and it did just occasionally jar. I thought what he could have done was associate himself with kind of ordinary Britons and tell us more a story of how he managed to get to the position that he got to and how he's, you know, just like one of us. He didn't quite do that, but he at least did talk about it. That's what this cost of living crisis does. It intrudes on the little things that we love, whittles away at our joy, days out, meals out, holidays the first things that people cut back on. 
picking up a treat in the supermarket, just to put it back on the shelf. One thing that he really wanted to talk about was recreating some sense of the British dream to copy an American phrase. And I think that he was able to start doing that. You know, it's about home ownership. It's about having a secure job. It's about knowing that you will get a decent wage for a decent day's work. Not things that Rishi Sunak talked that much about a week ago. How did all that fit with his central message? And given what Rachel Reeves, the shadow chancellor, said on Monday about the economy, do the sums of what Keir Starmer proposed, do they add up? He and Rachel Reeves talk a lot about big structural issues facing Britain. The NHS not working, people not getting a proper salary, people not being able to buy a home. Without more money, a lot of those problems are very difficult to fix. And the one thing that Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer do not want to promise is to spend more money. I was talking to a Labour-supporting economist here at conference who was saying the problem they've got is not only that they are trying to stick to the Conservative tax and spending plans, but that the problem they will face when they get into power, if they get into power, is far larger than they realise. So current spending plans assume that spending on the NHS, for example, rises roughly in line, maybe slightly ahead of inflation. What this economist was saying to me is to just keep the NHS from collapsing in on itself you need way above inflation spending increases. Assuming that Labour wants to do that, it's going to have to cut from elsewhere. So you've got this slightly jarring scene, I think, where Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves talk about things being fundamentally wrong with Britain, but then also being attached to the Conservative spending plans. And it's very difficult to match the scale of their solution with the scale of the problems they've identified. It is unusual for Labour conference to be scheduled after the Tory one, like it has been this year, but it did mean that Keir Starmer had the opportunity to take on the Prime Minister's arguments head on. Kieran, what did he have to say? I was talking to a very senior Labour official just before Starmer's speech, and one question we asked was, how did you manage to get it so the Tories would agree to let you go last? Because it is extraordinary to see the leader of the opposition as the climactic speech from party conference season. This person told us, well, it was just a scheduling thing and we agreed to it years ago, and it was when the Liverpool Conference Centre was free. Who knows if they realised at the time that it would be the year before a general election. I think if they had, there is no way the Tories would have allowed that to happen. I think it really helped Starmer that Sunak in some ways had set the scene. So he knew there were no surprises to come. He could be much more confident that his speech wasn't then going to get blown out of the water by some extravagant promise by the Prime Minister a week later. And to that extent, I think this whole conference has just felt more sure-footed. So Starmer did prepare a conference for a fight. I mean, he mentioned that the Tories will do anything to save their skin and we must be ready to fight, as, as he told the room. But what did he specifically have to say about Sunak's policies and the way that government has led? What did Starmer offer as an alternative? In a way, Rishi Sunak had given Keir Starmer a bit of an open goal by scrapping the northern leg of HS2 at a conference in Manchester. That really played into Keir Starmer's narrative of he is trapped behind the high walls of Westminster, unable to sense what is going on in the rest of the country. A man who keeps a very close watch on the cost of living crisis from the vantage point of a short-haul helicopter. The other line I thought that worked very, very well is he said, watching Rishi Sunak last week, I realised for the first time why Liz Truss won. still think we'd have been better off without lettuce, actually. The only thing I would say, and this is, I think, baked into the DNA of both Labour and the Tories, the Tories are naturally more combative. So I heard the word fight a lot more last week at Tory conference. Labour Party members don't like to talk about the fight. They get a bit queasy 
about the heat of battle. And so Starmer had to prepare them a bit for that. I think Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor, possibly did so a bit better in her speech. She was a bit more blood and thunder about it. Starmer's a little bit more cold and calculating. But I think the Labour members really need to realise in the next 12 months that they are going to get an absolute battering from the Tory party machine. And if they want to win an election, they're going to have to be ready for it. Fighting aside, a lot of people are looking to Labour, not just for hope, but new ideas of their own and for them to undo some of the policies that the Conservatives have put in place. Be it on the increasingly strict welfare regime, the harsh asylum policies and, as you mentioned, HS2. Did Starmer give them any reassurance? Starmer has to walk quite a difficult tightrope here. He's trying to offer reassurance to the country that he's not going to do anything too radical, but reassurance to his members that he's not going to keep everything exactly the same. And I think in that slight contradiction, he has found himself bounced around. So he has talked at times about a great green future and how green jobs might power the next phase of British growth. But then he backs away in the face of conservative attacks about net zero. During his conference speech, nothing really changed in terms of policy, but it was interesting what he embraced. And he really did embrace that vision of green jobs for the future. And he talked about what it is doing already in the US. And he said that Britain can't get left behind on that. Countries like America are using this gift to create manufacturing jobs the like of which we haven't seen for decades. And they're not the only ones. Putting his stake in the ground on that, I think, is going to prove a really important moment. Because when those voices in the Labour Party who don't think that Labour should really be spending as much as it is promising to spend on green investment come for him in the next year, he can point to that and say, look, I've already committed to this. There's no way I can back away from that. So I I think that will prove a really important point. And Labour members who may be disappointed that he's not going further should remember he's actually promised quite a lot already. And as long as he continues to embrace it, they won't be completely disappointed. Coming up, is Keir Starmer leading a united party? Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. 
Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Kieran, you've been here in Liverpool all week and you were at the Tory party conference last week. How does the mood compare and does this feel like a party that really believes it is heading for government? The contrast between this conference and Tory conference is so stark. Tory conference was not particularly well attended. There was a lot of gallows humour going on and this conference has felt very different. There are 18,500 people here at this conference centre in Liverpool. It's probably going to make the party about £5 million. This is the biggest Labour Party conference ever. That includes 96. Wow. There has never been a larger, better attended Labour Party conference. And the optimism is clear. People really feel like they are heading for government. They've been here before, of course, and I remember conferences before the 2015 election where Labour Party members were feeling buoyant and feeling like Ed Miliband was going to be the next Prime Minister, and it didn't happen. So I don't think they should take anything for granted. But it does feel like a party that has not only changed, but also is now embracing the fact that it's changed. One thing you can't avoid noticing is how much this week has been geared towards the centre ground of British politics. You know, it's really going for those middle Britain voters. Is this still a party that those on the left feel welcome in? Well, it depends what you mean by the left. The real left, the Corbynite left, I would say, of the Labour Party is not only not welcome here, they're physically not here. Jeremy Corbyn is a member, was due to speak at a fringe event, but didn't turn up because he actually didn't have a pass for it. Uh, We don't quite know why that was. A lot of his supporters are actually down the road at a different event called The World Transformed. And that is where a lot of the energy on the left of the party has been. And I have spoken to a few of them over the last few days. And what they've been telling me is, we're still here, we're still around, we know that we're not going to be welcome close to the Labour leadership for a while. But... When we get into government, they will need our ideas, they will need our support. I think that for now, they feel defeated. But they're still there, and they're lying in wait, and I would expect a lot of them will try and influence the direction of the party, if and when they get into power. Well, given what you've just said, does it feel like the United Party that Starmer keeps selling us, and does it feel like a party behind its leader? It feels like a party behind its leader because those who aren't behind its leader have been expelled. And that is one of the main reasons this feels quite similar, I think, to 1996. What Blair had done in 94 with Clause 4 and throughout 94 and 95 was take on the left of his party and make sure that they would not feel welcome, I think, at a Labour Party conference in 1996. And that's how it feels at this conference as well. There are a group of people who don't feel welcome, realise they're not welcome, but actually aren't making as much trouble as you might expect because they too want to see an end to 13 years of Conservative rule. Well, you mentioned Blair there and in your two episodes for us this week... You discussed how large Tony Blair loomed as a figure when it came to Labour's success in 97. And there is this general sense that Starmer doesn't have quite the same chops. You know, people might be fed up of the Tories, but they're not necessarily enthusiastic about the prospect of Starmer as an inspiring or charismatic leader. In fact, 
the polls run pretty close when people are asked about his personal appeal when he's measured directly against Rishi Sunak. Do you think this conference has done anything to change that? One thing that we were told, and we thought I would say ahead of Starmer's speech, was that he needed to show more of himself and more of his character, more of his personality, talk more about his background. He did it a bit, but not much. And actually, I don't think that's that bad of an idea. I was talking to one of his advisors just before the speech, and he pointed out he can't do something that's not him. Fundamentally, Starmer's calculation is the public doesn't want what they wanted in 96. They're not in such an optimistic place. They don't want a charismatic leader who's going to come and sweep them off their feet. To a certain extent, they had that with Boris Johnson and he let them down. Starmer's approach is very much people want someone they can trust, even if that person is boring. And he fits that bill in a lot of ways. That is his personality. He's got to own it. He's got to be willing to laugh at himself, and he was today. And he's got to be relaxed about it. He can't get too tangled up and too tense. But that's probably the right place to pitch it. Kieran, many of the former insiders around Blair that you spoke to said there needs to be a sense of urgency about Starmer's approach now and that the party needs to be out there on the attack. We've seen plenty of cautious reassurance. Is there any radical change on offer? I think there's more radical change than people realise. And we've been talking a lot about particularly Labour's energy plans and what happens with those. Labour has an amazingly radical set of policies on the environment. If they were to get to spending £28 billion a year extra on green capital investment, that is massive. Per capita, that is bigger than Joe Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, which is what we talk of as setting the standard for what a green investment plan should look like. Labour's plans as they are, in a lot of ways, are more bold than people realise. It's just they don't like talking about it because they also have this message of reassurance. What we heard in the two podcasts earlier this week was that Labour was promising in 1996 and 1997 reassurance, but with a promise of radical change. I think we've had a lot of reassurance. We're starting to see Starmer embrace the radical change he's previously promised. He probably needs to embrace it a bit more if he's going to convince people, certainly in this hall, that he's the real deal. Kieran, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. That was Kieran Stacey, The Guardian's political correspondent. If you missed them, do go back and listen to Kieran's two-part story of how Labour won the 1997 election, as told by those closest to Tony Blair. And there's more. You can catch up with Politics Weekly live from Liverpool, where John Harris is talking to the Mayor of Manchester, Andy Burnham, The Guardian's political editor, Pippa Carrera, and columnist, Polly Toynbee. Finally, there's time to tell you about two new books based on Guardian podcasts, Comfort Eating by Grace Dent, which, like the series, sees her explore go-to comfort food with famous friends. And then there's a football weekly book written by its brilliant and funny team. They're both out now in all good bookshops. And that is it for today. I'm Nasheen Iqbal, and this episode was produced by Ned Carter-Miles, Tom Glasser, and Lucy Hoff. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. We'll be back again tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.